Hello, good evening, and welcome to The Game Is About Glory. My name is Steph, and joining me to look back on today's match at White Hart Lane Noy against Leeds United are James Milo and fresh from recording his unveiling video, our new signing, Simon. Hello, chaps. What's up? What's up? What's up, indeed? <laughs> what is up? Well, what's up is it was a long couple of Antonio free weeks for us, but for Il Maestro himself, there was tireless work on the training pitch and even more tireless work in the debriefing rooms and a forensic look at just exactly what sort of shenanigans have been going down off the pitches at White Hart Lane, including the egregious and unhealthy sexing up of Canteen Nosh. You will not sneak a condiment in under Antonio anymore. And put simply, we can see that this rule is a condimental feature of Antonio's fitness regime. Anyone? I suppose not. My day job should remain intact. Comedy is not my future. We will then be tackling a question which, which is particularly pertinent to Tottenham, but which also permeates modern football. Is the concept of building a team dead? Can there ever be projects again? Has the painful rebuild been dodoed? And is it all about fast, expensive and gaining immediate control? But, as we always do, we have an intro question. And this week's is in honour of the new puritanical regime at Hotspur Way that has seen the banning of ketchup and mayonnaise. I am not banning sauce at the Games About Glory, but I would like to know, gentlemen, if you could only use one condiment for the rest of your life, what would you choose? And I'm going to start with you, Simon. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Of course, that you had that look, so I went to your meeting. Okay. <laughs> mayo is a good shout. Maybe chili mayo. You know that mayo you can get with a little mm-hmm. bit of chili. Or sriracha. Sriracha. How do you say it in English? Sriracha. That's, that's, yeah. 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 yeah, sriracha, probably. That would be the condiment you would choose for the rest of your life. Sriracha. I just like that it's yeah. hot, like me. <laughs> Oh, Milo is in total agreement with that, so let's see what's up his condimental sleeve, shall we? Yep, hot sauce. What? Chili sauce. I, I I was gonna go I was gonna go broad with it. If I just say that, that means I've got there's a whole wealth of different types of um chili based condiment that I can I can um Sriracha would definitely be amongst those. But if I could sneak in a bit of Tabasco and um my cupboard is full. I've got a, a wide collection, a broad collection of uh, various different allowed chili sauces. One, you are only allowed a one condiment. One condiment. Well, no, with chili sauce is one. a condiment. Or are you going to say that I'm, I'm restricted to one brand? You must pick a specific, be specific, a specific chili sauce. A specific chili sauce. Tabasco is such a white hot sauce. <laughs> it's just a hot sauce that white people say that they like when they say that they like hot sauce. I mean, that joke works better when you can see that I'm back. <laughs> What? How did a conversation about condiments, the one condiment we could choose the rest of your life, become become racial? No, I, I just, I'm, I'm absolutely flawed. I don't get it. That's just no, me. Let, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm going for this one. What does it say? I can't see. Valentina, salsa picante. It's a Mexican hot sauce. I was le- left actually thinking that you were going more South Southeast Asian chili sauce, you see. If you hadn't asked me to be specific and Simon hadn't already picked one, then I might well, have I'm that. from Sweden and I think that kind of colours my... My input there, because Tabasco is the only hot sauce I saw in any fridge okay. growing up. Good over God! Here. All, all I can say is uh, to our listeners, uh, game on the game is about glory. Uh, awesome is taking selfies. Uh, these two have gone <laughs> off into a lengthy diatribe about the dimensions behind chili sauce. I absolutely can't stand any hot sauce at all. So I'm looking really? at Awesome to bring some re- rationale to an opening question that spiraled completely out of control. Awesome, bring us back to task with a simple condiment. One condiment for the rest of your life with no silly accents delivering the question to you. Awesome. And easily, this is a tap-in for a hat-trick of chilli sauce. I'm going with... Uh, oh, hot sauce. Sauce. <laughs> what is wrong specific, with all of you? Jesus. Despite... Despite Simon's attempted racial profiling of chili sauce, I'm going with Tabasco, Tabasco, Chipotle, Chipotle variety. Oh it's, I would go and get the bottle, but it's empty because I use it every fucking day. The Chipotle one's really good. Mm. It's nice on eggs. I thought white people like mustard. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry. And, and Antonio, Antonio, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that our pod is making making this condiment thing much harder than the entire first team squad at Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. What are you going to go for, Steph? Yeah, I'm just going to keep this simple and say Branston Pickle. Why don't I? I knew it was going to be Pickle. There I you knew. Go. I'll just knew say it. Branston Pickle. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Branston Pickle is my choice. Uh, let's try and see if we can conclude a pod without veering into a wild series of cul-de-sacs. And personal uh, attacks. <laughs> 
mental. Jesus Christ! I think we've gone into more ba- more dark alleys in this. In the, oh, goodness gracious! The game is about glory, right? Bringing it back to task. Unbelievable. Well, we've covered the condiments uh, that each of us could live with. It seems that it was a rather more complicated series of answers <laughs> and uh, endeavours than I expected. And I can only uh, empathise with Antonio's uh, squad <laughs> dilemmas, uh, the things he must have gone through with the squad. Yes. Anyway, so <laughs> there has been a week that was, and I think I'm going to move to it quickly. Christian Romero has injured himself on international duty, gripping his thigh and hobbling off the field, having tried to play on. Of course, this was later revealed as a hamstring issue. We've really no idea how long this injury is going to take to heal. He's having another scan in seven to ten days, uh, which is sometime next weekend. It sounds like it's going to be out for at least a month. And it is a shame because he was fast arriving at top form. But of course, I think when you, you know, cram all these extra games in for players, these things are going to happen, and sadly, I think we're going to, you know, see a lot more pipers down before the season ends. One piper that didn't go down uh, was Harry Kane, who decided to fill his boots against the uh, mighty minnows such as San Marino, shoving four goals past them to go above Jimmy Greaves and equal with Gary Lineker in England's all-time goal-scoring list. He now finds himself one goal behind Bobby Charlton and five behind Wayne Rooney, the apparently mooted potential stopgap for Manchester United <laughs> coaching staff and managerial chair. I thought I'd slip that in. Uh, well done, Harry. Uh, Stephen Bergwine uh, was probably the uh, most surprisingly uh, exciting international spur of the uh, the break. Smashed a goal and assisted in the Netherlands 2-0 defeat of Norway, which helped secure them a place in the finals. Uh, I mean, very quickly, chaps, let's just talk about this for a minute. What's this? I mean, well, it's a six cent question. What's it going to do for Stephen Bergwijn's confidence, Milo? It's obviously not going to knock it, is it? No, oh, it's a lovely, lovely taking goal. He got an assist as well. Um, I thought what was uh, most interesting is he was playing on the right of a, of a front three. So in terms of how we're currently lining up, and uh, you know potentials for him getting in the side. You know that's interesting. Anyone else? Yeah, I think. I mean, his trouble in Spurs at Spurs is that he plays behind. He's a left winger. He plays behind maybe the greatest left winger in Spurs history. And so when he plays, or if he wants to play more, he will have to play on the right. If we keep on, um, if we keep this uh, formation, I think Stevie is a hard one for people to kind of get a hold of. He's kind of shy. He's kind of quiet. And so people kind of assume he's not confident. And I mean, I want him to be more uh, aggressive on the ball. I want him to take his shots, take his opportunities more when he gets to play. But I don't th- feel like he's low on confidence. I feel he's, like he's been good all season. He was injured and so he's had like a dip but i don't know i was glad for him maxim pascozzi he's a little under the radar because that's how we roll at the games about glory but milo never loses a chance to get maximum use Pazza, and he got his 11th senior cap for estonia last tuesday as they lost 2-0 away to the czech republic he played right back in the back five of this game i am going to ask milo at this point if you think and i'm just going to leave this with you milo we'll move on after this do you think that he has a future at Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, or do you think he's going to become a player that we, you know, a profit on we sell off? No idea. I mean, he's um, he's a bit hamstrung this this season because he hasn't he's not in the Euro squad because he'd have to be listed as a senior player because he hasn't been at the club long enough. So he's done he's done very well. He's he's uh, adaptable, can play a number of different positions. Obviously, you know, he's made the most of his chance with the Estonian senior after getting the surprise call up. So. Who knows? But I don't. You know, we're not going to see him in the first team until next season at the earliest. You are excelling in your uh, in your role as uh, chief predictor and comfortable making them. I see. But yeah. <laughs> no, I say that. I say it because I know that you do like to bring him up, and you have mentioned him a fair few times. And I genuinely haven't seen enough of him to know. So it's uh, it's interesting. I know you do and have seen him, but uh, yeah, we shall see. We shall see. But he's featured in our roundup of the week that was, and uh, we're now going to move to the game that has just been. You know, it's one of those proverbial games of two halves. I think against. Leeds United, I think it's fair to say. You know, great excitement coming into the match, of course. Antonio Conti's first home game, really good. Great reception before the game. And, you know, he was forced into uh, a couple of lineup changes, which I think he probably wouldn't have made otherwise. You know, Ollie Skip was suspended. And then, of course, there was the, Rom- the Romero injury. So I'm going to start. Simon, what did you think of the lineup? Um, Milo, I mean, we, we talked about this before. I, I was kind of surprised, actually. I. I... I figured we would keep the formation three four three, but that Ndombele would get in for Skip 
I mean, now it feels foolish, but I just thought he would um, he would be a little bit more brave and try to win the game, just considering Leeds' form and, and how open the game would be. But then, you know, when it came out after being surprised, Milo rightly kind of reminded me that, I mean, consistency is the main thing for him. He, he wants to keep it as consistent as possible. So he went for the player that is kind of most, the most like-for-like replacement for, mm-hmm. for Skip. And also it's about the system. He, he probably felt that Winks was able uh, to be more disciplined and faithful to the way he wants to play tactically because it's so automized and and it's really important to keep to what he wants you to do so i was surprised i was a little bit uh, underwhelmed but uh, i came around and kind of felt like okay this is gonna work awesome i'm gonna ask you about the uh tanganga uh in for uh romero obviously uh possibly the most like for like that we have do you think it worked how do you think it went i mean in the first half tanganga didn't he didn't have the best of best of games um, it was obviously between him and Sanchez, wasn't it? And I think, yeah, you could say that Tanganga likes to kind of defend on the front foot a bit more, try and intercept balls. Um, Sanchez can also do that. But um, I think, I don't know, maybe I thought Tanganga was selected because he seems to play with a lot more um, sort of physicality than Sanchez. And maybe that's what Conte was looking for. But um, it, it was, to me, it seemed a bit of a strange first substitution around the 57th minute it was um you know a bit like for like Tanganga wasn't having a bad second half um the whole team picked up in the second half but um yeah it was an interesting selection given Sanchez was knocking on the door I think um for a start even before Romero got injured I think the irony of what you just said is that before the game we would most certainly have said that Tanganga was the was the more physical of the two but I've got to be honest I thought when uh Sanchez came on I thought he was incredibly physical and was absolutely was much tighter to his men, which was possibly tactical. And Milo will probably get into that um, as as well with regards to the first half versus the second. But I also have to say I was a little disappointed with how that first, uh, well, the only concession, but the opening goal of the game was conceded because obviously uh, Royale has, got, you know, he's been he's been done. It happens. But as a covering defender, I, I didn't think Jaffet did enough. I thought he was sort of between a rock and a hard place. He didn't really do anything. And that cross shouldn't really be allowed to come in, in my opinion. I think they're both kind of aggressive. But I think uh, Tanganga is more front-footed. He likes to get in bef- and kind of kill an action before it gets too, too far. And I think Sanchez is aggressive, but he's, he's more of the kind of defender that uh, sits back and waits a little bit. Um, I have to say, I, I thought this was probably one of Tanganga's, not worst, but one of his uh, uh, most inconsistent games. And I think it has a lot to do with his um, play on the ball, which I thought was kind of a major problem from, from both a tactical point of view and from a player's selection point of view. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things here is... Certainly before the game when we were talking about kind of like for like, that was assuming that we were going to go out and play the same way. And certainly in the first half, we didn't do that. The fullbacks dropped very deep. My favouring for Jaffet was that, you know, his experience of playing at right back meant that he'd be a lot more comfortable um, covering the right back position and drifting out from play, which is one of the features of Conte's game. And also more, more comfortable getting forwards, as we saw Davis doing the second half to great effect. But Jaffe didn't really have an opportunity to do either of those things. In terms of the substitutions, I, I thought um, you know, both Sanchez and, and Delhi, maybe less so Sessegnon, I thought were substitutions to partially to see out the game. I think he was looking to keep it tight and, and try and hold on there. Let's go. Let's go to the other, uh, you know, the other change that was forced. And um, you know, Simon's already touched on it with Harry Winks. You know, I'm interested uh, how how we we felt that he did. I mean, you know, I think he is, uh, as as you said, Simon is a very coachable, technically smart, um, you know, uh, managers player. I mean, yeah. he is one of those players that managers like to work with. Um, you know, and he's also, I think, got a, a sort of a very sort of this sort of very British way about him or English way, which is if you give him a good hard rollicking, he reacts to it with a stiff upper lip. He strikes me as one of those players. He's always like an old school young player, if you will. And I think, I, you know, I look at him and I wonder if Conte is 
exactly the sort of manager who's going to revitalize him. I'm, I can't say that after today's game, I feel I've got yeah. an answer, much as I don't think we're going to get answers to many questions that Antonio is asking. But I didn't think he was that bad uh, at all, especially in the second half. Uh, you know, mm. he really came into it. Although in the first half, he played one excellent ball into Kane. A good 25, uh, 25 yarder just played him right in. But, uh, you know, let's have some let's have some thoughts about Winks here. I think central midfield is a is a problem for us currently, no matter you know who we put in there. I, I think the big one of the big problems we had in the first half. I think the the plan that um, Conte had was to sit deep and soak up Leeds pressure and then try and hit them on the break. And because the fullbacks were sitting back, uh, pretty much all of our play was going through the middle. And most of the players we had there aren't particularly good at finding a quick pass. And there was a lot of distance between the midfield and Kane. I think in the first half particularly, it was quite hard for Winks because there weren't those balls available. Whereas in the second half, when we went out and pressed more and we committed more men forwards, there's more balls, of, uh, more passes available, you know, more balls on. So I think, um, yeah, I think the difference in his performance in the first and second half can partly be put down to um, how the team were playing as well as just his own performance. I would, I would want to double down on that. I, I think like if we're going to evaluate any of the players, we have to first look at what they were asked to do. Mm-hmm. So I think you saw two totally different uh, tactical setups. So in the, and I, he, he more than alluded to this in the post-game interview. I think he was unsure about if the team could execute his high pace, high press tactics over 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. And also he knows how leads play. I mean, they move around, they're, they're good at keeping the ball. So his tactic, well, let's sit back, let's be compact, let's win the ball deep and let's play out from the back and, you know, attack with the dynamics, with the wingers coming down and Kane coming down, you know, one touch pass, you know, turn around and attack. Mm-hmm. counterattack and what Leeds did and Bielsa did was they were really good with the man-man marking yep. kind of just killing off that and I don't actually think that the players we had available this game with Romero out with Numbele uh, not ready with Lo Celso not ready or injured I don't think we had the players to be able to absorb a really effective press mm-hmm. play one two touch passes because it's just the technical um, technical ability of you know receiving the ball on a tight angle you know getting it exactly right all that kind of just kept failing and i think that's a little bit effort but also ability and we didn't press i mean kane was basically alone on their side of the pitch and the rest of the team just sat back and if we look at it at that a lot of players had a hard game tanganga had a bad game on the ball winks had a hard time hoiberg had a a hard time but then when in the second half when we when Conte went for you know let's sit in their half let's press the hell out of them let's win the ball back uh, let's attack with the numbers now you know Dyer looks better Wings looks better Hoiber looks better I think you're partially right let me say that say Dyer looked better on the ball in the second half is not true he was absolutely uh, I thought he was our most dynamic player in the first half which is quite sad in many ways because he shouldn't be I thought he looked very sharp and I thought he looked really good coming forward what I'd like to do is I'd like to say it was interesting that the, one of the players you didn't mention in that first half of I agree some technical um, shall we say weakness I guess is the best phrase was Lucas who I think once again you know is just one of these players who you look at and he catches your eye but I think when you are playing the sort of system we were playing in the first half it is imperative that those players are sharp and make their touches count and too many times he just did not for me and yeah but just to respond to that i'm not saying they don't have an ability on the ball ever i'm saying some some players are not as good on the ball under specific pressure like dyer i think he was fine the first half he wasn't the biggest problem i'm just saying like uh, wings and hoiberg and to some extent tanganga when he got the ball or when he was attempting to make that first pass to lucas uh coming to get that ball you know, sometimes it was too hard, sometimes it was too loose. And that, you know, the moment that happens and you have leads, you know, pressing with four or five people, you're never going to get out of your own half. That's all I'm saying. I'm, I wasn't slating anyone. I was just saying you need, uh, if you want to play that way, you know, play out from the back and keep possession. You need a couple of players that who's specifically good at keeping the ball under pressure, like Ndombele, 
after the game, I went away. I went and had a look at the um, passing stats for the side, uh, particularly Mora, because you know I just wanted to check what I'd seen really. And just picking up on Dyer, he made the most passes of any player in the team. Yeah. Um, he made 65 passes over the 90 minutes with an 81.5% completion rate, which again is amongst the higher successful pass rates. Mora made 34 passes um, with 64.7% uh, completion rate. But what was really interesting is he made three key passes, which was more than anyone else. And and I, I wonder whether whether he's the kind of acceptable high-risk player for Conte at the moment. Because what I'm trying to think about is, you know, why is he getting picked? Because I don't think I would be picking him currently. I would be, I would be playing on Dembele in his place. Um, but, you know, maybe he's that high-risk player in that he's creating more chances than others, even if he's a bit wasteful one-third of the time. I mean, the conversation's obviously jumping around a bit. We started off talking about Winks, and I was just thinking about the difference between his first half and second half. And I think first half as a team, we were generally a little bit poor. I think the, the pitch felt big. We were quite wide. There was a lot of space in midfield when we, you know, when we weren't being relentlessly uh, pressed by Leeds. Um, and I think a lot of the time, Winks wasn't looking forward enough. And the crowd seemed to get on his back at one point. That that seemed to change a bit more in the second half. Both him and Hoybier looked to play the forward ball a bit more. And I think with Winks, maybe it's a simple case of he hasn't played a lot. And, you know, maybe he does need a few games to sort of find his confidence. I don't know if he's going to get those few games because when we've got a full, you know, a full squad to pick from, Winks doesn't really get in the starting eleven, And uh, I think that's really been the problem with him over the whole of this season, if not if not longer. Yeah, I mean, I think to, to conclude what you said about Winks, I mean, I, I, you know, again, I think he was the player that came in and did a job. I mean, I think there's no doubt that, as Simon said, you know, Ndombele is the more attractive, uh, more exciting uh, and more tantalising player. But I think in a first half like we had, he would have cost us. Just to give Wing some more praise, I think it's about how you play. I think in the second half, our aim was to, you know, kill their game. To be, We had like four or five people in their half. Hoiberg will win the ball, give it to Wings. And Winks is great on the ball. He finds, you know, that key pass. You know, we talked a bit about Ndombele and whether he would have made a difference. And I, I thought the comments, there was a couple of comments during the week that I thought were quite interesting on this. The, the, the first was um, Conte's one where he was talking about Tango's got quality. Uh, you know, he said that a few managers have struggled with him. It means that it's important to keep order and for him to do uh, what the position is asking you to do. We're working very hard with Tange. He has to uh, work much harder, blah, 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 blah. Put his talents into the team for the best of the team, not for a single player. There was also, I saw during the week, a comment from Fabregas, where Fabregas said, I think with Antonio, it was the first time that I've ever, I've seen someone know exactly what they want. It was like going to school, I promise you. He will tell you from the goalkeeper until you've scored the goal what you have to do, exactly everything. And I think the Ndombele comments have been mis- misunderstood or misconstrued or uh, misrepresented by some people where they're saying that he's not, you know, he's got to work harder, he's not trying hard enough and things like that. And I don't think he means that at all. No. I think what he's, you know, with a player like that, with his skill set to fit within a very, very precise system like that, I think he's going to take take longer than someone like Winks or Hoybier or Skip who are just cogs in a wheel and you can drop them in. So I think we will see Ndombele, but it's going to take a while for him to, um, to get used to the system and get used to his place in that. And then I think at the end of that, what we're going to see is a really, really, really good player who, who just makes such a difference just to add to that I think I agree with everything you just said and I'm very excited to see the type of player that uh, Conte can bring out of Endombele I think the only problem with Endombele is half the time he doesn't know what he's going to do when he's doing it he's so instinctive and creative it's just it happens for him I don't think it's it's, it's going to be very hard to coach the best of Endombele but I'm, I'm more than happy to see but it you'd happen. say the same about Mora at the moment Mora is very much an instinct player and maybe there's a space for one or two of those on the side but first of all let's, let's just not beat around the bush I think that what Conte demands is not just I mean it's not just physically exhausting it's mentally exhausting you're talking about 95 minutes of complete focus and concentration which you know is I mean insane levels of focus and concentration which is not you know most players cannot lock in on that but just to come back around to the Lucas point Milo I, th- I think you've well, you've made an excellent point in in the sense of is he a risk that we can afford to take um 
possibly. Is he a player that we will upgrade on ultimately? I believe he is, and I believe he will need to be. But critically, right now, he is serving two masters in the sense of he not only serves the job he's been given tirelessly, relentlessly by by Conte, he does, as you would say, he retrieves the ball. He retrieves the ball. And I'm I'm thinking, actually, when I was saying that, like when you throw a ball for a dog that just goes after that ball, picks it up, brings it back, picks it up, brings it back. But it also kind of works in the football sense. But not only that, he does provide that spark of energy that can also get a crowd going. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a double-edged sword of positivity for him right now under Antonio Conte. But we will see if he lasts. Yeah, I think that was kind of my point. If we're going to evaluate players, we have to first look at what they're asked to do. And I think if you're going to have a system with two midfielders, you have to work really hard. You have to be really disciplined. You have a lot of responsibility. And I think for this game, Winks was the better choice. But I also feel like the second half where he used a different tactic um, fit more players. It was a better tactic for that game. And more players, I I felt like, felt comfortable being on the front foot, knowing that, okay, I have to run hard, I have to try to win the ball back, win 50-50s, and um, and that was just easier and, and a better fit for that team and those players. Let's go to this second half, because it was obviously so different from the first. I mean, I think there's been an almost hyperbolic reaction to it. I don't think we were quite as brilliant as everyone is making out. I thought we were, you know, more impressive than in the first half in an attacking sense, but that was, you know, part of the plan, and uh, and, and, and I'm glad to see that we could execute it. But what I am intrigued is to investigate the balance between tactical shift and spiritual emotion, emotional feeling. I mean, I think that, you know, I know that I didn't see the Sky News coverage, but Milo was telling me that, that, you know, Sky went overboard on the passion bit where, you know, because obviously Conti, you know, got the 12th man involved and and, and quite rightly too, and did an excellent job of doing it. It was almost like watching a conductor actually uh, working working his orchestra in terms of the stadium. And uh, I think that he has recognised the value of our stadium as a 12th man and knows exactly how to make it work at the key moments of football. And I think that that in and of itself is, you know, one of those marginal gains that a brilliant coach brings to a football club. At the same time, you know, it would be impossible to think that it could only have happened with passion. I mean, tactics were involved, but, you know, what balances are we looking at here? And what, you know, do we feel that there was one um, one element of these two over the other that pushed us over the line in the 2-1 win today? Yeah, it was tactical. In the first half, Conte said as much in the post-match interviews. He chose to sit back in the first half and soak it up. And in the second half, he made a decision to, to press. Phillips, I thought, was excellent in the first half and caused us all sorts of problems. Yeah, what a player, right? Yeah, particularly I was picking up Kane. Really, really struggled oh, with that. Yeah. And in the second half, we we pressed him a lot harder. Um, and and he didn't have as much joy. You know, Conte said that he was concerned about Leeds, um, running and their physicality. And I, so I think it was. A, I think he decided to to try and soak that up and then and then step it up. I, I think probably to be more aggressive in the second half was always the plan. And, you know, in terms of the kind of Conte and the crowd and stuff, I mean, it's great theatre, isn't it? And, it, you know, it helps build the bond between the manager and the fans and the manager and the players. I thought the reaction to the players as they came off the pitch towards him and him going to them. And, uh, you know, that's that's great. And it's really good to see that. And that helps build the team spirit and all that kind of stuff is really important. But I think the main difference was that we we pressed harder in the in the second half. We we upped our running and, um, you know, a, a tiring lead side struggled to deal with that. And just one final thing on this, actually. Actually, this is the third Conte game, and all three games now we've seen a, a, you know, really good finishes to the game. So if you think about the, the Vitesse game, his first game, where we were really under the cosh and down to 10 men, we finished that game really well. Uh, and similarly with Everton, uh, just before the international break, played well then as well. So I think this is going to be a bit of a feature. I think what really helped in that second half was we, we started the second half quicker and Kane hit the post within, you know, within the first minute. I think it was Sun had a deflected effort, hit the bar like that. That did get the crowd going. And on, you know, on the reverse side of that, we started the first half very slowly. So, you know, Conte will be learning. Yeah, I mean, I think the first half was a plan, though. I think, you know, I think he he wanted to start slowly. I think he wanted to try and soak them up and he wanted at least to wear themselves out. To some extent, I think it's about keeping it simple. I think it's simpler in some ways just to say, go at them, you know, uh, let's try to win the game, run harder, fight harder. This sit back, but run more, be disciplined and do this. It's just... um, just felt a little bit more straightforward in the second half. And I think that's just like everyone else is saying here. It's just uh, 
uh, it was mainly that that kind of won us the game. But I also feel like just having, you know, ignoring all that narrative, journalism, <laughs> media stuff, I do feel it's important to have a leader to just feel like, okay, that's who we look at. I mean, the commentators said I, something I about... I completely yeah, agree. Someone said just... Uh, you know, a, a team takes on the personality of its of its coach, and mm. I couldn't say Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I thought it was a little more than theatre what he did near the end. I think he's watched us enough in the last two years to know how shaky we get in these situations, and I think he knows ex- or knew exactly how to turn the amplifier up and how to make sure that everyone puffed their chests out and got it over the line with a sense of with a sense of like you know well we're going to just do this this is what we're doing and as you said it does start from the man on the side and 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 you know he is a, he is just such a charismatic leader and it's so important i think it's an intangible that we have not seen since pochettino and i think it's vital yeah i mean i think it's fair to say if nuno was there he was sat there you know not moving it probably wouldn't have um, had the same um, uh, same impact i think that moment when he when he turned to the crowd and started to, trying to get them going, that was him talking to the families going, this is how we do. This is what we do. Yeah. And, and equally, when he went around to every player, just noticing how he didn't you know, take down his energy, just greeted every player with the extreme, you know, kind of over, not theater, theatrics, but over, just being really emphatic about, oh, this is how we play. This is how we fight. And I felt just emotionally as a fan, I felt like, oh, this is this is something. And I, I think that was probably needed after the the fans' reaction at the end of the first half. I think we're going to have to get a little bit patient because you know it's a feature of Conte's play that sometimes he will try and hold possession, sometimes he will try and soak up the other team, the other team's pressure. He will do that in the first half, and partly it was on the on the performance, but also I think it there is a. A dislike of teams holding possession um, and, uh, and and passing it across the back or passing it back, and it was clearly getting on the uh, getting to the crowd, and that, I think that is unhelpful, particularly in a manager's first league home game where you've got the crowd booing. So I, th- I think in the second half where he's trying to gee them up and trying to get the crowd uh, going is important, but we're going to have to be a lot more patient and and actually think about what he's trying to do a bit more as well. Right. Well, just to follow on from that, you've been far more polite than I'm going to be now for the next minute or so. I thought it's pathetic. And I think anyone in that stadium who is booing should take a long, hard look at themselves. You impatient assholes! It's like you've got the best, one of the best managers in world football. You know, you can see that there is work to be done. You know there is work to be done. And you also understand that no human being is going to respond positively to that sort of negative energy. So I, I couldn't agree more. Patience... And actually, a little bit of appreciation for what we are finally trying to do properly, having got it wrong two years ago. Now, I was just going to say, I totally agree, but I also feel like maybe this was an important moment. He kind of proved, if you look at, just as a storyteller, if you look at being booed off at the, after the first half and that reaction at the end of the game, I mean, every kind of manager has to prove himself and prove his idea to the fan base. And I felt like he kind of did that. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, but again, I mean, you, you are right. As a, as a narrative, it played out perfectly for him. But number one, if our fans need Antonio Conte to prove himself to them, then they're ignorant. And number two, we're not good. I'm just a mom in this family. I was trying to, you know, twist it to something positive. Maybe it's better now. <laughs> Dad is yelling at the kids and mom comes, everything's fine. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, then I will move on and say everything is fine. It ended fine. You know, let's wrap this up without, you know, our weekly analysis of Harry Kane's performance. Um, just but we'll, let's just say that you know he certainly showed some sprightly energy and looked much more up for it than he has for a long time but let's bring this to a close and I'm going to ask you for uh, one positive and one negative in 30 seconds Whew, 30 seconds we couldn't get through condiments in less than 20 minutes so this should be a, <laughs> this should be a belter uh, I'm going to start with you awesome three two one go okay my positive is the uh, the reappearance of Cessignon which I think is a crucial component of our squad having a second uh, left wing back option. Negative. Just leave it there. How great. It's a tough one. (laughs) Yeah, no, I feel like there are negatives out there. Okay, I'll I'll say the atmosphere, the atmosphere of the crowd, yeah, going in at half time. I think that that was unnecessary. Simon? My positives is Conte, and I'm going to be a little bit more specific. Conte's ability to make a technical, technical adjustment. 
I feel like too many times we had coaches that, first and foremost, just, you know, play a different way every game, depending on the opponent. He's got an idea and a system, but he's also skilled at seeing what doesn't work and how he applies that formation attack, uh, the formation of idea and changing it. Just the idea of, you know, as we all kind of touched on, switching out Tanganga. I think you get surprised because you never see a defender getting subbed. Uh, and that felt, that didn't feel like he was, he was ragging on Tanganga or like we've seen before, like someone doing something dramatic because they're being shit or whatever. It was, it was a tactical adjustment and it worked. And I felt that was really encouraging. Negative, I feel worried about our um, midfield situation and how we play out from the back. I feel we're too easily pressed and I'm worried we'll not be able to kind of play better teams and be able to keep possession. And so something's going to yeah. give. Either players like Hoiberg and Winks and Skip are going to get have to be more skilled in how they how they work in Conte's system when we want to you know keep possession or and Dombele and the Celso will have to be get a lot better. Yeah, you've got to hope one of those is in the side by the time Liverpool come around, haven't you? Mine? My positive, um, Reggie's goal um, from Dyer's free kick. It looked to me like something they'd worked on the training ground. Reggie started his run uh, at the moment they uh, we took the free kick and running behind, behind the wall. So I think it's something we'd worked on. Nice to see it come off. And I thought Dyer's free kick I thought was pretty good. Uh, my negative... Davis for their goal at the at the far post. I think he's a bit weak as a, a central defender. I think he's he's far better looking up the field than he is towards his own goal, and he's got a habit of um, of uh, reading players coming in at the far post badly. It's just saying he's not so good at. You know, maybe it's because as a fullback he hasn't been there too often. But um, yeah, it showed his weaknesses as a centre back. I think positive. Yes, absolutely. I was actually about to say Reggie's goal. Um, so I think I'm going to make my positive. That you know Eric Dyer's performance. It was. I thought imperious, actually, really solid, really strong and showed some real craft on the ball, I thought today, uh, mm. in fairness, which was really, really nice to see. I know it's in his locker. I think uh, many people do, but he has been a favourite whipping boy for some people for some time. And it always delights me when I see him have a game like he had today. And I agree that with everyone who says that the one negative uh, was our fan base in the first half and the people in the stadium. It's like, you know, get behind this. You know, because we're we're going to see truth on all in all aspects of the club. Antonio Conte is going to bring us truth. Which players are good enough? Which players aren't? Which members of the boardroom are good enough? Which aren't? We are going to get truth, and surely that is worth your undivided one hundred percent. So please, more of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was a standing ovation. So uh, that being. That being said, I must say that we actually, before we go, and I haven't read this statistic for a while, we haven't had opportunities to do so. It's so awful. Our XG today was 2.32. I mean, I think that's really good compared to Leeds 1.47. We had four shots on target today for all those people who have been bitching about that. We had 13 shots in total. So I've just mentioned that I think we should all remember that we're going to get truths from this moment in our history from a manager who sees us as a project, but not a project in the traditional sense. As we've all understood projects in football, it is when you get the time to build a team from the ground up. You get to put your feet up maybe a little bit now and again and relax and get a few seasons to, you know, try this position, this player and that and the other. The question we're asking tonight is, have we moved beyond being a club that can work as a project? Are we too big to be a project? Are we too big for painful rebuilds? Uh, you know, perhaps more than most clubs in recent times, I feel that our beloved Spurs have dilly and dally between the devil and the deep blue sea when it comes to project or instant gratification. Uh, there can be little argument that Poch's tenure turned out to be a period of project synergy and magic. Uh, and it culminated in missing the biggest trophy in club football by a dodgy penalty and an unrehabbed ankle. Uh, yet when given the chance to back another project, Daniel, you know, he got jugular and decided to, to go for an instant grat type of manager. And one flip-flop later, we're back with an instant grat, inverted comma, style manager. And with it seems a firm commitment to short-term boom and the end of Tottenham Hotspur as a project-style club. So, you know, I think the question is very real and very relevant today when you also bring in the financial situations that football finds itself. 
Before we get into the discussion, I just want to be clear with everyone who's listening. We are not having a discussion about managers per se, more the styles of you know club work that they represent. Um, we're essentially discussing patients versus impatients versus financial necessity and the needs of foot. But we will focus the conversation through our beloved Tottenham. Uh, you know, Poch bombed out the older player a few months after taking over. You know, would Nuno and Conte be able to get away with doing the same? Um, I think right now Conte could probably do anything he wanted as long as results didn't suffer in the kind of medium term. I don't think Nuno had enough capital to be able to do that. So I think a lot of this comes down to capital. And when you start talking about uh, the bigger name managers, they automatically come in with... Um, with more political capital, and I think they can get away with more than a, a smaller name appointment can have. Awesome. I'm going to ask you this. Scratching my head at actually trying to figure out when we first became a project-building club. I mean, obviously, you would look at the 60s and say we were flying high. We weren't exactly, you know, project-building. There, there weren't these wild definitions at that point. You could look at the early 80s, the same. You know, we're, we're playing football, we're either good or we're not. And suddenly... You know, in the Irving Scholar era, we start to see money come into the game a bit more. And so that seems to dictate how a football club behaves a bit more, perhaps. When do you think we first started to become a project club? Do you think it would have been the Alan Sugar era? <laughs> Sorry, I'm, la I'm laughing because we covered this last week and there's no project there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking more more along the managers than the chairman. I think it was maybe Hoddle. It's it's a tough one. I, I don't I can't align the managers with the chairman, so I'm just going to go with the managers. But I think it was Hoddle was the first one that I can think of um, who had that mentality, who was you know willing to build from not grassroots, but from you know build up from the youth ranks, try different approaches. Uh, you know, realign the priorities of the club, look at, you know, behind-the-scenes stuff a lot more. Yeah, so I was going to make a claim for Berkey, actually. We think about, um, you know, when we were in second tier and then building up from there and bringing in Hoddle into the side and what have you. I think um, I think you can make a good claim for that being a project. Yeah, I'm not that old, though. It, it is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I remember Berkenshaw's side and I remember those players coming in. I said that was going week in, week out. It is an interesting thought and it will actually, I think, be a very pertinent one when we come to analyse the impact finance has had on how a club looks. Um, you know, because essentially in a football way, you know, you're absolutely right. Berkey did build the club, but he, he didn't have the pressure that modern football has on it today. So it's, it, yes, it's mm -hmm. possible. I equally do agree with Awesome that when you think about it, you know, Hoddle did try and work as a project and was a project manager. And as you say, did sort of change a lot of stuff behind the scenes with Pleat. I mean, you could argue that Pleat has been trying to build projects for years at Spurs or did do. Um, let me move to you, Simon, and ask you in a more holistic football sense as well as a Spurs sense, do you see Mauricio Pochettino as the most successful project-building manager in football? I don't know about football. With Tottenham Hotspur? I, yeah, with Tottenham, yeah. Because, I mean, first and foremost, uh, I love this topic. It's so, it's so important, I think, to kind of know what you're doing. And I feel different parts of the fan base would want to go back to that beautiful Poch era when, you know, a young, talented uh, manager comes in and gets the time to kind of build his team. And as someone that calls himself a deconstructionist, I love, you know, deconstructing what this means. And I think, first and foremost, I think that the terminology is important. Like, so when you say project manager, that what you mean, what you're saying to me is rebuilding, like basically the, the, the slow rebuild where you find the youth in the in the club and you find cheap, talented players around Europe and you start building uh, this team that with the plan that they're supposed to peak a couple of years down the line. And to me, looking at the big teams in the Premier League, us being one of those. Um, I think that the rebuild era is dead, and I think Poch was the last uh, champion of it because he kind of reigned at Spurs when we made a transformation from being Aston Villa to being a top six team in in terms of finances, expectations, demand. So yeah, I think he was the best project manager we've ever had. And I also think he was the last we'll ever have. Steph, I think your question about the kind of best ever, 
if you, if we're looking beyond Spurs, then you'd, you'd have to say Ferguson. You know, it was it took him it took him a long time to win anything at United. Um, certainly brought through young players once it, well, you know, after that initial side. It took him far longer to 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 lift the club up than it did Poch at Spurs. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Um, I think the, the last two rebuild managers we had was Ferguson and uh, Wenger. And because I think a lot of people think Koch rebuild it, it was a is a rebuild manager, and to some extent he is. But I think it's more of the modern type of re retool or uh, re uh, reload type of manager, where you find the right manager and you give him one two years to kind of you know bolster up or mm-hmm. or or build a team that can win now. I think Chelsea attempted this with with the Lampard or was forced to, to attempt it with Lampard. And I think this project that today failed with Ule has also been something that went from being a rebuild. And then, you know, now we'll, they will have to kind of find a manager just like we did with Conte and kind of go for it. Sorry, go on, Awesome. I have some stuff to say, so you get your point in. Just add to it that, I mean, whether or not Conte is a project manager or, a, you know, instant instant change kind of guy, he's, I can't see almost half of the starting 11 from today being in the team in two years' time. So he's got to rebuild, which is a project anyway, to do. He's got a lot of work on his hands. He needs to rebuild the club mentally in some ways because we're we're fragile, like we touched on earlier. Central midfield, we're, we're almost non-existent. Yeah, he, he's got a project on his hands, full stop. I think one of the things I'd like to bring into this discussion, which I think is extremely important to further define it uh, for, for, for the listeners, is that when we talk about Mauricio Pochettino and what he did, and you mentioned, Simon, you mentioned that they were, you know, that he helped build us into a club of finances and, uh, uh, you know, financial acumen. He did, but let's remember, he never got to take advantage of any of that, first and foremost, because I think he was taken for granted. And I think it's very important to also remember that he probably, you know, he he exceeded expectations and he went at such a pace, it was almost too fast for the club. I'm not sure the club were quite prepared for the rate of progress we had in such a short amount of time. And I think that subsequently he became a victim of his own success. And I think had we made, had we gambled on giving him the chance to rebuild a second time, that was the moment that we said goodbye to rebuilding in that project sense, I, I think, forever. Because the finances behind this state and behind this club, not to mention the importance of international profile, dictate we cannot afford to take that chance with anyone else for the foreseeable future. I think my point was more, not that he helped us or made us into it, but that he reigned during an era where both the Premier League went to being a much more money-influenced league, but also that the club went from being at White Hart Lane to be having this big stadium. So it's almost like the times around him, he was at the club when the times around him, both for the club and the league changed. So you're, you're absolutely right. So he was kind of the right, the last manager from that era. And then he never had the opportunity to kind of, to kind of, you know, be our coach in this new era. I think if you look at the quality of managers when Poch came in, so we obviously we appointed here. Man City had Pellegrini, Mourinho was at Chelsea, Rogers was at Liverpool, Van Gaal was at Man United, Wenger was at Arsenal, and you know you got Wenger definitely towards the end of you know he'd gone past his kind of peak powers at that point. So I think the quality of managers in the league in terms of you know wasn't there. Whereas right now you've got. You know, three, three of the you know the best managers in the world in the Premier League at the moment. Three or four of the best managers in the world in the Premier League at the moment. Add to that also Aston Villa, Everton, and Newcastle are now very rich clubs. You, you bring up Brendan Rodgers being at Liverpool, and I think actually Brendan Rodgers at Leicester is another fine example as to why we can probably quite safely say that that sort of rebuild project manager is n- just not ever going to have the traction that they once could have been because you know. Unless Leicester, you know, significantly increase their stadium size and their commercial off-field income, they are simply not going to be able to compete with the top six as it sits. And so every time that there's someone wants to put up a banner outside the club, you know, protesting this and that and the other, finance this and we're only about money, that and etc. You know, you do have to remember that 
you know, we do have a very important, you know, financial situation to keep an eye on. We are in that realm and uh, you know, it's important. It's important that we recognize it. I think it was vital we recognized it after Nuno. And I think finally Daniel realized it. I think maybe he realized more than anyone that it had to be done. I think he was living with the dream that we could have been a project. Right. So um, I partially reject this thesis anyway, in that I think Poch achieve success a lot quicker than we're saying so you know if you define a project as a slow build you know in his first season with us uh we finished fifth and he got us to a cup final the second the season after that we finished third so i would say that was pretty quick and if that's a very fair point I mean, yeah my, my hope for conte is that we finish top four but if he got us top five in a cup final i think most of us would probably say that was a successful season so I, I think and i think also in terms if you look at the kind of you know we look at this kind of daniel's choice of manager you, you we've got to bear in mind his first choice was van Gaal, not potch so he was looking at um a big name you know maybe he thought instant success manager at that point so i, I think daniel i don't think there's any big strategy in terms of managers i think he he likes alpha males i think that there's a tendency for him to appoint those and most of his managerial appointments that are successful are ones that are um weren't first choices they were accidents or kind of you know uh, weren't planned i don't think he set out to have a project a project was kind of forced upon him i think on the whole concept of the topic i was thinking about this before the pod and it feels like in this day and age people expect things a lot quicker than they used Mm. to you know whether it's music you've got uh, Spotify shopping you've got Amazon like it feels like that kind of instant gratification has translated into the Premier League where this season we're what a third of the way through it we've had six managers sacked and we've got you know Man United are going to be thinking okay who can we bring in that's going to give us instant you know not just top four because they expect more than that um, and it's just kind of a uh, it's just a thought I have about the wider world. I, no, I mean, it was reflected today by the fans in the first half. And you're absolutely right. They're already booing uh, one of the top four managers in the world. Well, not the manager, but the forms in the club, whatever. But they're booing. You're absolutely right. I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. And I know, Simon, I know you were going to add something to this. Me and Milo had this debate where I said flippantly that uh, Conte, that it was a dramatic shit. We went from a rebuild manager to a win now, man. Well, because my my not my expectation, but as I remember it, this whole summer was about patience. You have to have you have to give Nuno time. You have to give Nuno time, and then I mean, with every with all the problems he had with injuries and with you know the international breaks, it was pretty quick before he was let go. And I kind of felt like to me, I saw it like like we were too as Manuel said, we're too big for a rebuild. Like we need to win. Like we can rebuild or we can retool and we can try to get better and younger, but we need to also win now. I mean, I think it's a very congruent point uh, with what Awesome's just said. I think we're basically talking about the, the, the brute impatience of society. And I'll throw another ingredient in this and another nail in the coffin of, of, of the patient project building football. And it's the C word. It's COVID. COVID has shifted everyone's perceptions of everything and why should football be any different we're frustrated we get upset about small things more than we ever did and football is certainly to be numbered amongst those things so you want Mm. you want things quicker and faster and better than before because i think we're generally more impatient as a society so I, i think that what happened with nuno is I think that Daniel probably thought, eh, you know, he wasn't, you know, my ideal choice. I can, I can have him warm the chair until I can pull the potch trick out of my sleeve. That's hopefully something I'll be able to do in a year and a half, and everyone will be sort of okay with it, and will be a sort of able to do it. But I think he very, very quickly learned that that is not possible anymore, and that frankly, it it would have taken. I feel sorry for Nuno still. He would have had to have been. A magician to have made that situation. And the ironic thing is that the project manager is going to end and ended up getting less time than the instant <laughs> fix manager because Conte is not going to get sacked after eight, eight or ten games or whatever it was that Nuno got. I don't think Nuno was a project manager. I think Nuno was a stopgap. I don't. Th- I think the only reason we appointed him is because we couldn't get anyone we wanted, and I don't think there was ever any ever any intention of him serving more than a year as manager. I think that's very fair. I mean, he was spun very nicely, wasn't he? As a, yeah, I mean, of he course, spun nicely, but. but- but basically, we appointed him, you know, the week before pre-season training was meant to start. We'd run out of options. We'd run out of ground. But but I just feel like both things can be true. I think when you see that you can get, only can get Nuno, or Nuno is your best option, you go, okay, what kind of project can we build with Nuno? So you go, okay, we can get younger and we can, because I just look at the brief that they apparently had for the coaches. He's, he needs to play youth 
um, academy players and he needs to play the right way. I've just felt like all those parameters that he had for his project, when Conte came in, I mean, the, 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 not the demands, the expectations and what he can do are totally different. For, for him, he can, you know, spend money and get better now. And he doesn't have to, probably doesn't have to buy really young players. And so this, that's the shift I was talking about. Like, I mean, I would say the project now is Paratici's. And, you know, I think in the summer, what he'd done is the, the spending to me appeared to be split between two. You've got a load of players coming in to instantly improve the squad, you know, Romero and, and you know, Royale. And then you've got, he's bought a few for the future. And that's just what a director of football should be doing. Um, and in terms of kind of what Levy said when Nuno was appointed and all the rest of it, I just don't t- take a lot, lot of it very seriously. I think it's just, they've got to say something. And it's just puff for the for the fans and, and the media. And I just don't take it that, very, that seriously. I think there's a very, very uh, harsh reality here, which is that these definitions are made by profile versus income versus projected mm-hmm. loss of income. It's really simple. Yeah. Yeah. Antonio Conte gets paid what he gets paid, gets given the assurances he wants for purchases or whatever, and gets given what he requests because he has earned that. And internationally, in the football world, he carries that reputation. So he is going to be able to get that because he demands it. And his profile keeps us so much higher than we have been for a long time. And when it comes to sponsors, when it comes to, you know, international territories and viewership and so on and so forth, these are unfortunately the things that dictate the way a lot of clubs have run. But doesn't that get to the, to, to, to the heart of this issue that we're all talking about here, which is that's what we now, at our stature, with our fan base, and be, having been in the, uh, in the Champions League final, that's what we expect. We want to win now. We want trophies. This re- slow rebuild thing from a couple of years to, that's not what we want now. Two very different things, I think, but they do share the same space, and it's uncomfortable. Me, personally, as you know, uh, a supporter of, you know, many decades at this point, I just want to see us competitive and and, and want to feel proud in us. I mean, you know, the, the, the guys will tell you, I, I am someone who likes to see a manager with profile, personality, who, you know, I like to see the club unified and looking like it's strong. Instant gratification is not necessary for me. But as a football club, it is becoming imperative to our financial health and survival. And that, I think, is the dichotomy that we're maybe wrestling with, uh, you know, as a fan base. I wonder how much of this is partly down to this uh, issue that's not going to go away, which is this European Super League. I mean, the chances are that's going to come back uh, as a as a proposal, albeit with, you know, relegation and stuff. But I'd say within the next year, two years max, and... If we've got someone like Conte at the helm, I think there's a much greater chance of us being included in that big six, whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, that, that's just me trying to read what Levy's might might be thinking himself. If you look at the rights deal with NBC this week with £2 billion, if it's going to be resurrected, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw it for mainland European sides in order to try and fight the, uh, the wealth of the Premier League because Italian sides, Spanish sides... You know, German, French sides, Dutch sides, you know, they're not going to be able to compete with the level of money that the Premier League are bringing in. So maybe that's where you see it. I was going to just say that in terms of, you know, if you look at the Champions League qualification, you're saying about the kind of the financial element there, Steph. I think what we also have to bear in mind is that this is essential for Enoch. Enoch are an investment company. They don't, they don't own Spurs because they love Spurs. None of this is, uh, is because of that. They've bought Spurs and they've built up the club because it's going to increase their return when they sell us. And the best way they can they can maximise their, their the price they get for us is to have us as a regular Champions League side. That's what they need. You know, if they can afford Conte and if they can afford the players that he wants to bring in and he can get us back into the Champions League regularly and they come to sell us, then he will earn that money back a million times over for them. I mean, absolutely. And one of the things I, I, I love about him is that, you know, Antonio Conte tells you as it is. Doesn't hide. He tells you everything. He'll tell you in a post-match press conference exactly what's going on and everything. And what he said about this club when he joined was that, you know, basically, yeah, it looks spectacular off the pitch. They've got all this great stuff. You know, how about putting something on the pitch that matches what you've got off it? Essentially uh, saying what you said, Milo, which is that, you know, we need to be competing at that highest level on the pitch if you want this to continue. And in his post-match press conference today, he was talking about top four. So, which I think is really important because that sets the sights for the 
the team. It, it tells them what they're aiming for, and I think it should be our priority. One just thing quickly, I, I was looking at uh, the top five, top six um, since Poch came in and their league performance. So since Poch came in, we've had four seasons in the, um, where we finished in the top four and three outside of it. Man City have finished in the top four every single year. Chelsea have had two seasons where they finished outside. Liverpool have had two seasons where they finished outside. Manchester United have had three and Arsenal have had five. So, you know, it's not, it's not nailed on. There are teams that drop out. You know, this year it looks like United are going to drop out. I mean, obviously, you know, Leicester had a, had a couple of good seasons but finished fifth both times and, you know, they, they fluctuated wildly outside of that. I think other than City currently, you're not seeing anyone nailed in there and you know you will see those those changes there are gaps there for teams to exploit if they've got the right manager at the right time I agree and it's interesting coming back to something that you said awesome about uh, Antonio Conte you know as a manager and the titles we give people you know project manager versus instant grant it's fascinating what you said because he does have a project it's a big one but he equally has uh, an instant results track record and mentality Um, and so I think that he is maybe once again going to prove to be the best of both worlds for Daniel maybe maybe Daniel lucked out again or somehow stumbled into it or just decided hey I got to pay for it because when you look at it the chances out there of these uh, top elite managers who can deliver quick stuff it's getting slim I just feel like why why I feel this topic is so interesting It's, it's probably because how the club has changed over the last 10 10 uh, years feel like we're a club that just hit puberty we started getting you know a little bit of hair our our voice started crack and our limbs are a little bit uncomfortable so in our mind we're kids where we just you know where half the fan base wants us to be one thing and to you know are not you know look at us as that that small not small club but that what heart lane club whilst maybe the younger fans wants us to win now and and I feel that there's a there's a confusion sometimes where uh, with nostalgia and sentiment kind of can blind us for what the expectations and demands are now when you look at the facts everything you guys so intelligently s- spoken about right now that we have grown up we need to kind of we can't go back to being the choir boy, so to speak. Final question, and maybe this will... Well, it's either going to confuse us or it's going to clarify. And I'm going to base it around um, a manager who I think we would all recognise is tactically one of the best managers in the Premiership who has not yet got the profile of an Antonio Conte. And I'm talking about Graham Potter. Do we think that the modern game and the way that modern football is going is ever going to give a manager like Graham Potter the chance to exercise his talents in a top six side or at a top six side i think um what we don't know is how much of the way potter manages brighton is out of necessity and if he went to a side a side with a bigger budget whether he could adapt that and get his ideas across quicker with better players that was the wishful thinking side of nuno wasn't it in that he'd done quite well at wolves and we're wondering whether he could do a bit better with better players and it didn't turn out like that but I do wonder whether you know we typecast a manager just because of the the employment they've had up to that, that point, rather than what they could actually do. And I don't know the answer to that. I think we've just seen you know we've just seen Solskjaer get given quite a run of it at a very big club. Um, I think Arsenal showed a bit of patience with Arteta. He could easily have got sacked, you know, a few months back. Um, so I don't think the era is over, but it does take it takes big balls from a club and. You know, we don't know which clubs have got those balls. To be honest with you, Orson, though, those are two really badly run clubs. Those are probably not the examples that... I, but I do take my hat off to United for trying. I mean, it's, um, you know, they might well bring in a Galactico coach like Zidane and it probably still fuck up. I think this kind of goes to my point. Stuff changes so quickly now with the money that's in the league that by the time it's gone four years and Greenwood or Rashford, you think, have grown up, Everything's changed. So that's why I kind of feel like maybe that slow rebuild, we don't have the patience because everyone around us is moving so quick. And I find it so amazing that you brought Potter up because he's actually the, the person that got it, kind of woke up this idea in me, which is when everyone says they want Potter, I don't know if they actually understand the demands that Potter would have at our club. He would still need to win now. 
it wouldn't be like yeah. when Poch came to our club because our club is not the same and the league is not the same. And that's kind of the, the disparity and confusion I kind of feel we have as a fan base. Absolutely right. And so I'm going to conclude by saying that, well, it's a question that will continue as you, as we, I think we all agree to evolve uh, as, as the situation is evolving for every club in the premiership. Money will continue to be the driver, I would suspect. And once again, we do have to give Daniel some credit for finally waking up to the fact that we needed a big guy and he got it mitt. <laughs> so uh, let's leave it at that. Let me move on now to talk about Mura. We travel to Slovenia on Thursday, play Mura in the Proletariat Champions League. Mura have lost every Proletariat Champions League game in the group so far and sit bottom. <laughs> so, Milo, who should we who should play? We're playing a really poor team here, so you'd hope that we're going to see a bit of rotation. I hope that Cessnion gets a start. I thought he did quite well and he came on today. You know, you'd assume that maybe Skip will play as he missed, missed today. So I, I want a strong side, but I'd like to see... I'd like to see a bit of rotation and uh, you know some of those fringe players who might be pushing for a first team place come in. So yeah, maybe uh, Ndombele, Cessnion, uh, Delhi, Bergwin. Bergwin. Yeah. Mm. And I think it'd be an interesting one to see if Kane has the same uh, success that he had with Southgate on trying to boost his stats by getting another another ninety minutes against you know cannon fodder. Essentially, I hope he does. Well, one one of the things that Simon and I have been debating is about whether Conte is using these games as training games. And I think Thursday will be interesting on that. We'll, we'll get an idea of it. But it, it would be quite interesting if he did put out a strong side. You know, maybe he starts Kane, but some of the players around him changes. OK, let's all see if we can... Uh, a one-word answer. Are you confident against Mura away, Simon? Hell yeah! Awesome. Very. Milo? Yeah, of course. I'll add yes. And what I'll further add is that from Mura... We go to Burnley. We're making our second trip to Turf Moor next Sunday. This time it's in the Premier League. Again, are you confident? One word, Simon. Hell yeah. Milo. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I am. Awesome. Cautiously. That was very good because the reason I say that is that no, game no. against Palace was a bit of a bit of a humdinger, and and Burnley aren't aren't much. He's just it, you see you see folks. He had it there. Sorry. Cautiously was perfect because you managed to convey everything. Yes. We will win. And with that, I'm going to go and make myself a sandwich with as many condiments as I can find and shove them all together and dip them in hot sauce. So uh, thanks a lot, lads. That was a lot of fun. Uh, We'll be back next week with a look at our games against Moore and Burnley. If you hadn't figured out that that was what we were going to do next weekend. Uh, You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. So give us a follow, say hello. And if you like The Game Is About Glory, and if you don't, you should, we'd really appreciate it if you leave a review on iTunes. Five stars. Give us the full five stars and not one star less. As always, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.